Thanks for listening to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. To hear more sermons and to find out more about our church, please visit sugarhillchurch.com. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever done something that on the front end it seemed like a good idea and then you realize a little bit later that it was bad? Have you done that before? Yeah, show of hands. Let me see a little wave out. I'm not the only one in the room, right? Yeah. So I, I, my, my life is a history of these kind of things. I, w- I was thinking about this week about stuff that seemed like a brilliant idea on the front end and then turned out to be bad. Uh, one is when I was a teenager, uh, sort of the first place I started serving in the church was at the soundboard. So I, uh, I, I love tech stuff. So as a middle schooler, I'd run sound at church. And so we used a ton of nine volt batteries. So uh, one of the things is you don't want the pastor's mic to go out in the middle of the sermon. That's usually a bad thing, right? unless you're ready to go home, right? But anyway, you're not supposed to laugh at that. You're like, some of y'all were quietly amening. You're like, I'm ready. No, no, no. So it's a bad thing. So I would check the nine volt, make sure it's good. Do y'all know how to check a nine volt to know if it's good? Do you know? Yeah, some of y'all know. You touch it to your tongue. Isn't that a great idea? Isn't that brilliant? Hey, let's see if this works, right? I mean, but as a middle schooler, I did that all the time, all the time. I was checking the battery. But this one time when I was in middle school, I had braces. Do y'all have braces when you're little? So my great idea is, well, let's just see what happens when I touch it to my braces. Seemed like a good idea at the time. When the band around the first two braces popped, turned out to be a bad idea, right? So I've had a a history of those things. Seemed like a good idea, turns out to be bad. Uh, When I was in college, uh, where I grew up, we didn't have a lot of snow, but we had sort of the ice storm that we, we have around here in Atlanta. And so when I was in college, everything's iced over you're not supposed to leave the house. Dangerous, dangerous. Stay home, stay home. But I knew better. So as a college student, I was like, hey, it's a good idea. I'm going to get out of the house for a little while. Turns out that your truck doesn't stop so well on the ice at a stop sign. And what seemed like a good idea, $2,000 plus later, after nailing the back end of a UPS truck, my great idea turned out to be a bad idea. Yeah, bad idea. Uh, one of the stories is when I was a kid, uh, I told y'all about our Ford LTD station wagon. If y'all were here a few weeks ago, I talked a little bit about it. Uh, if, you, if you're not familiar with Ford LTD station wagon, it would seat about 475 people, so all of us in the service could probably ride together. Giant, giant, giant. And one of the things about station wagons is they had the big trunk, and some station wagons actually had the seats in the trunk. You know what I'm talking about? Ours didn't have that, but it didn't stop my parents from putting me in the trunk. You know what I'm saying? So anytime the car was full, since I was the youngest, I was in the back. And so this one time, we're in the car. My brother and his friends are in the car. And so I'm in the trunk. And so I'm back there trying to entertain myself. I'm writing signs that says, help, I've been kidnapped, and holding that up, right? And, uh, you know, know, all, all this stuff. I run out of stuff to do, so I start looking around in the trunk. And my dad was in the military for 37 years. And so he had every disaster preparedness thing in the trunk. He had the flares, he had the jumper cables, he had the tire pump, all that kind of stuff. So I'm sitting back there, I'm seeing all the stuff. And then about that time, I noticed that one of my brother's friends has his arm across the back seat of the car and his hand is dangling into the trunk. Now, I don't know if y'all did this when you were kids. I don't know if your kids do this now, but we always had those invisible lines of our space. Do you know what I'm talking about? All right, you got your space, you've got your line, you've got, hey, this is my area, don't, don't you dare come into my area. And so as I'm sitting back there in the trunk, I see my brother's friend, I see his hand clearly in violation of my space. 
I mean, this kid, the audacity of this guy to think his pinky can hang out in the trunk. And so my great idea is I'm going to teach him a lesson. My great idea is I see the jumper cables here. And they're not like dollar store on sale jumper cables. These are military grade, huge jumper cables, two hands required to squeeze the alligator clip on the end of it. And so my great idea was I'm going to teach this guy a lesson. I pick it up, I squeeze, I snap it onto his pinky. <laughs> Pray for your pastor, right? <laughs> and this kid screams like a little schoolgirl. I mean, he's like, ah! I can't believe I just did that. But anyway, you know what I'm saying? He's like screaming. My mom pulls the car over. I've heard of timeout as punishment, but not knockout. You know what I'm saying? I mean, she is, this is bad. It seemed like a good idea. Turned out to be, about, we've all done that, right? We've all, not jumper cables, but we've all done dumb stuff, right? We've done dumb stuff. In the moment, we get caught up, right? In the moment, our adrenaline's pumping. In the moment, it seems great, but sometimes it turns out bad. That's why in my life I'm trying to institute this 24-hour policy before I jump into something, wait 24 hours and make sure it's still a good idea. Well, in the Bible, we've been in the last several weeks in a series called The Risk. The Risk. It's this idea of saying yes to whatever God has. And in Luke 22, where we're at today, we see some things that on the surface seemed like good ideas, but turned out to be bad. So if you've got one of the sermon handouts, I'm going to invite you to jot down a couple of things today. But in Luke 22, there's instant after instant after instant of something that seemed good turning out bad. Luke 22 is powerful because in Luke 22, Jesus is on his way to the cross. Basically, he's entered Jerusalem. The countdown is on leading to the cross. And so in Luke 22, several big things happen. One is what we call the Last Supper, where Jesus says to Peter and to John, hey, go find an upper, go secure a room, set up this meal. And so he takes the Passover meal, something that, that Jews have been doing for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years as a nation. He says, we're going to have this meal together. And if you know the story of Luke 22, he, he takes that meal and he shows them what it actually stands for. He, he picks up the bread. He says, this bread represents my body. And just like physically we're breaking this bread, my body is going to be broken for you. He's talking about the cross. My body is given for you. Serious moment, right? And then he picks up the cup and he says, this cup, it looks like it's filled with wine or juice of the vine. It looks, you know, it seems like a cup that's just normal for us to drink, but this actually represents my blood that's going to be shed for you, that's going to be poured out for you. So major, serious moment days away from the cross. This is my body. I'm breaking it for you. This is my blood. I'm spilling it, pouring it out for you. And right after that, the disciples look at each other. They raise their hands sort of sheepishly, and they're like, that's great, Jesus, but we've got a question. Which one of us is the greatest? Is that a good question or a bad question in the moment? That's a bad question. Here's Jesus saying, all right, I'm going to break my body for you. I'm going to spill my blood for you. Yeah, that's great, Jesus, but who's the greatest in the kingdom? And then moments later, Jesus turns to Simon Peter and says, Peter, I, I know that you're bold and audacious, but you're going to deny three times that you know me. And Peter's response is, I would never, ever do that. And then moments later, they leave the upper room and they go to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Some of our, our church members that went to Israel, Pastor Chuck last month, they got to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And so they go to this place where Jesus went regularly to pray. And that's why one of the reasons why I think it's important for us as a church to regularly pray day in, day out. Jesus did this regularly. So he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He says to his disciples, look, this is an important moment. This is an important moment. He says to them, watch out, be on alert, pray that you may not be led into temptation. And so it's a serious moment. And this is the moment where Jesus, I think, for the first time, realizes the weight of what's coming on the cross. He wrestles internally that he's about to go to the cross and he's going to have the sins of the world rested on him. He who knew no sin is about to become sin for us. And so the one who never has felt separation from God, the one that has never done anything wrong, never sinned, he's in the garden wrestling. And the Bible says that as he prays, he literally sweats blood. So he's wrestling internally. He's wrestling. God, I know this is why I'm here. I know I must go to the cross, but God, really, if there's any other way, if there's some other way for forgiveness to take place, if there's some other way, let this cup pass from me. And then at the end of that prayer, Jesus says, but not my will, but yours. And in the middle of that moment, Jesus is sweating, drops of blood. He's wrestling with what's happening for all eternity in this moment. And he leaves the garden. He walks out to the outer area. And what are the disciples doing? They're what? They're sleeping. Really? In this moment, Jesus said, this is my body that's broken for you. This is my blood that's poured out for you. Hey, be on guard. Watch out. Pray. In the middle of that moment, they are sleeping. And that's where I want to pick up the story. What seemed like a good idea turns out to be a bad idea. Luke chapter 22, verse 46. Jesus comes out and he said to them, why are you sleeping? I've been tempted to ask that during a couple of sermons. But anyway, <laughs> just kidding. I remember when I was a teenager, I, I'd be tired on Sunday morning, I'd work really late, and then uh, Sunday morning I'd come to run, run down at church, I'd be like, could we just pray? Could the pastor just say, let's pray, so I could close my eyes just for a second? Have y'all been there before? Have you been there? So he walks out, verse 46, why are you sleeping? Get up, pray, that you may not enter into temptation. Get up, pray. And here's what happens, verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came. And the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. So you know the story, right? Judas is the betrayer. Judas is the one that's going to hand Jesus over to, to the soldiers, hand Jesus over for the, the sham trial. And the way that Judas says, you'll know who the one that you're supposed to get is, is to kiss him. This was normal in their day. It was a sign of respect to a teacher, to a rabbi. And so for most people, it didn't seem like a big deal. But Jesus says to him in verse 48, Judas, are you really betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around Jesus saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike him with the sword? Here's their idea. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pull out our swords. We're going to fight back. And here's what happens. Verse, verse 50. And one of them, and we know this is Peter from the other Gospels, one of them struck the slave of the high priest and he cut off his right ear. It seemed like a good idea. It seemed like, hey, this is the logical thing to do. Hey, we're, we're going to pull out our weapons. We're going to fight. But what seemed like a good idea turns out to be a bad idea. So let me describe that. I've got some thoughts about why this is bad. The first thought, number one, is they were fighting. They were fighting the wrong enemy. They really were. They're fighting the wrong enemy. So Peter sees the crowd 
Peter sees the soldiers, there's probably about 600 soldiers that have showed up. So the high priest comes, he has an intern, a servant with him, Judas is there, and then, uh, then 600 soldiers that are armed, ready to fight. I mean, they, they didn't know much about Jesus. They'd heard rumors of Jesus. They'd heard a little bit about him, but they didn't know what to expect. And so they showed up armed and ready. So 600 shoulder, soldiers, Judas, the high priest, and his servant. And listen to what the Bible says. I read it, but let's just go back to verse 50. And one of them, Peter, struck who? Struck the soldiers? Struck Judas? Struck who? The servant. Why is that a big deal? The big deal is everybody else is armed. 600 soldiers, armed, swords, shields. 600 people ready for battle, and Peter pulls out his sword, and he fights the one person that probably isn't armed. He fights the, probably the weakest person in the room. Think about that. Peter fought the wrong enemy. He fought the wrong enemy. If you're taking notes, just write down this reference. Write down Ephesians chapter 6, write verse 12. Ephesians 6, 12. The Bible says in Ephesians 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against people. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers and powers and principalities. And so the Ephesians 6 begins to unpack the fact that we do have an enemy. That in our lives, we do have an enemy. As believers, we have an enemy. But the enemy is not the person in front of us. The enemy isn't the person beside us. The enemy isn't somebody from our hometown. The enemy is the devil. The en- whatever you want to call him, whether you want to call him devil, Satan, Lucifer, whatever name you want to call him in the moment, he is real. And he is the enemy. Not the people we're in relationship with, not the people in our family, not the people in our church. The enemy is the devil. And here's what the Bible teaches. Between this physical world and heaven, there is this spiritual realm. There's a spiritual battle going on. And essentially, Satan knows he can't defeat God. Satan knows he can't kick God off his throne. Satan knows he can't get God. And so instead, he decides, well, I'm going to attack what God loves the most. I'm going to attack his people. And so if you're a believer, what that means is you've got a target on your life. If there's been a moment that you've said yes to Christ, you have a target on your life, and the enemy is attacking that. See, sometimes preachers and, and, and authors and people have made it sound like, well, if you'll just put your faith in Jesus, everything's going to be great. Seven steps to a happy life. It's going to be awesome. There's not going to be any problems. The problem with all of that is it's just not true. It's not true. See, when you don't know Christ, you don't really have a target on your life. When you don't know Christ, the enemy doesn't have to attack you because you're not living for God in that moment. You're not one of his children in that moment. At, at that moment, you, you're not a threat to him. And so in his thing, and he's like, why, why? Why would I even waste my time with you? You're not even a threat to me. And so there's no target on your life. But the moment you say yes to Christ, the moment that you turn from your sins and you turn to him and he becomes the boss, the leader, the person that calls the shots in your life, what that does is it makes you a bright spot on the radar of the enemy. 
and the enemy begins to say, I'm going to attack that person. I'm going to attack that home. I'm going to attack that family. I'm going to attack that church. I'm going to attack that ministry. See, what happens is that the moment of salvation, there is a target placed on your back. Here's why I think that's so important. Most of us know that we're being attacked. I mean, if I pass the microphone around this morning, you could tell everybody about the attacks that are going on in your life. And they're different for all of us, but you know you're being attacked. All of us have felt the effects of the attack. All of us have felt the effects of the battle. We feel like we're getting shot in the back with arrows. We feel like there's stuff exploding that shouldn't be. We feel the effects of the attack. The problem is we misidentify who the attacker is. We don't really believe the devil is real. We've made him into a cartoon. We've made him into a caricature with just horns and a tail and a pitchfork. And so we've sort of laughed him away. And so we don't think he's the source of the attack. And so here's the problem. We know we're attacked. We don't believe he's the source of the attack. And so you know what we end up doing? We end up blaming the wrong people for the attack. Does that make sense to you guys? I know it's the Sunday after the 4th and we all grilled out and all that good stuff. But what I'm saying is, with all getting attacked, if you know Christ personally, you're getting attacked. And the problem is, since we don't believe the devil's real, since we don't believe he's the enemy, we end up misidentifying the source of the attack. That's why, whenever we're attacked, we end up blaming a spouse. We end up blaming a kid. We end up blaming a church. We end up blaming an employer. We end up blaming a sibling. You just keep going down the list. And what the truth at the, bottom of, uh, at the bottom of all this is, is that's the wrong enemy. People are not the enemy. Flesh and blood are not the enemy. Your spouse is not the enemy. Your kid is not the enemy. Your church is not the enemy. Your pastor is not the enemy. Your neighbor is not the enemy. Your, your co-worker is not the enemy. People are not the problem. They're part of God's plan. And so here's Peter pulling out a sword. Here's Peter thinking, I'm doing the right thing. But the problem is he's fighting the wrong enemy. And then the second thought about this is he's fighting with the wrong weapon. He's fighting with the wrong weapon. And so in verse 49, their weapon is, hey, we want to pull out our sword. Their weapon is, hey, we're going to pull out our sword and we're going to use this man-made thing to win this battle. It seemed like it made sense on the surface. Hey, we're going to show how, how, how aligned with Jesus we are. We're going to show how, how, how we're ready to attack. But the problem is they're fighting the wrong enemy and they're fighting with the wrong weapon. See, the Bible says again in Ephesians 6 that our weapon isn't something man-made. Our weapon isn't our intellect. Our weapon isn't social media. Our weapon isn't the telephone. Our weapon is to be be the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Isn't that what Jesus used whenever he was being attacked? I mean, you read about Jesus starting his public ministry. The Bible says he was led to the wilderness where for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan threw everything that he had at him. I mean, he tempted Jesus in every way possible. And every single time, Jesus would say, I can't go to that place. I can't do that thing. Why? Because it's not the will of the one that sent me. Jesus over and over and over again quoted the Word of God. That's the right weapon. The right weapon isn't us trying to figure it out ourselves and to prove our point ourselves. The weapon of choice is the Word of God. And so just like Jesus quoted it, we've got to. 
But before we can quote it, we have to know it. We have to get it off the pages of Scripture into our daily lives. That's why I think reading the Bible every single day is so important. That every single day we would spend time in God's Word and we'd say, God, would you cause this truth to come into my heart? Would you cause it to change me? But there's one note I want to make about this. Is that when we use this weapon, we have to use it well. We have to use it appropriately. See, when I say to use the Word of God as our weapon, what I'm not saying is to use it like Scripture bullets. Scripture bullets is what I call it when somebody rips a verse out of context and they shoot it over into somebody's life. See, sometimes we do that. Sometimes, especially, this is a big social media kind of thing where somebody will try to make some big point and they'll try to prove how right they are. And so they'll, they'll take a verse. Yes, it is a verse, but they rip it out of the context of Scripture. They rip it out of the heart of, of the, the intention that God gave it. And it's like they shoot it and they end up rattling, uh, putting holes in somebody using the Word of God. Well, you know what the Bible says? And they shoot it at them. Well, this verse says, and they shoot it at them. And that was never the intention of Scripture. If you're taking notes and you want to write down this reference, just write down James chapter 3, verse 17. James 3, verse 17. That we're to test this, this pure, this peaceable. So number one, they're fighting the wrong enemy. Number two, they're fighting with the wrong weapon. Number three, they're fighting with the wrong attitude. Their attitude was off. I mean, when you look at this, is Jesus fighting back in this moment? When you look at this, is Jesus pulling out his sword in this moment? No, what you see is you see Jesus submitting while Peter is fighting. You see Jesus saying, look, this is part of the will of the Father. Look, this is part of me leading up to the cross. Look, this is the will of the one that sent me. And so Jesus is submitting while Peter is fighting. Why is he doing that? Is he trying to prove a point? Is he trying to prove, Jesus, I'd I'd never deny you. Jesus, I would never do what you told me I was going to do earlier tonight. Jesus, I'm the man. I'm with you. Was he trying to prove a point? And so here's what Peter's doing. He's fighting when he should have been submitting. And sometimes we do that. Sometimes we do that. Sometimes when some, we see something, it rubs us the wrong way, and we quickly pull out our sword with the wrong attitude. The attitude of Peter was, this is not going to go down. I'm going to prove that I'm right. One of the things that I love that Pastor Chuck says, he's got, he's, it's just awesome getting to serve with him, but one of the things that he says that really resonates with me, especially thinking about this message, is he says this often, and you've probably heard him say it. Instead of, uh, of proving that we're right, what if we made things right? Have you heard him say that? Instead of proving that we're right, what would happen if we instead made things right? And so if you're taking notes, just write down the scripture reference. 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24 is a chapter that captures this tension between David and Saul. Saul was the previous king. He was on his way out. He knows that David has been anointed to be the next king. And so he, he, he's insecure about David. So in, attitude of insecurity. Uh, attitude of accusation, right? Wrong attitude. And so he tries to track David down to kill him. And so David in 1 Samuel 24 is hiding in a cave. David and his closest friends, they're in the backside of this cave, tucked away. Saul and his army are traveling through that area trying to find him to kill him. Saul's got hundreds and hundreds of his soldiers with him. 
And so David's men are hiding with David in the cave. Saul has to use the bathroom. So Saul actually leaves, leaves his army. He goes into this cave and he begins to take off his, his, uh, his outer king kind of garments. He sets down his weapon and he begins to use the bathroom. He begins to use the bathroom. And he actually is in the same cave as David and his men. So all of David's men have sort of the same response that Peter has in Luke 22. All of David's men are like, hey, this is your chance, David. David, this guy has been mean to you. This guy's trying to kill you. David, this is your opportunity to, to prove that you're right, to make it right, to, hey, you should go, you should kill him. And so all of David's men are saying the same thing. Yeah, 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 you should kill him. This guy is wrong. This guy is evil. You should kill him. And I love David's response in 1 Samuel 24. He says this. He says, who am I to raise my sword against the Lord's anointed? In other words, David is saying, God is the one that's in charge. God allows him to be king And God's going to be the one that removes him from being king. Who am I to take matters into my own hands? See, here's the principle of the wrong attitude. It's just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because you can. See, sometimes we think opportunity is the green light. I could do it. I could prove my point. I could pull out my sword. I could rattle that person with Scripture. I could make them feel so small. I can't believe you would do this. We think just because we can means that we should, and that is not true. Just because we could say something doesn't mean that we should say something. Just because we could make a point doesn't mean that we should make a point. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. And the second piece of that is just because everybody says it's okay doesn't necessarily mean that it is okay. All of David's men, hey, this is the right time. Just because everybody says it's okay doesn't mean that it is okay. See, we do this all the time. We do this all the time. We, we try to prove that we're right. We try to, no, I can't believe my, I can't believe my brother did that. I'm going to show him that I'm right. I can't believe my boss said that. I can't believe he made this promise. I can't believe that he did. I, I, I have my right to do it. And here's what ends up happening is we take matters into our own hands and we handle it in our own way and it just doesn't work. That's the wrong attitude. Is that what Jesus did in this story? No. Is that the way Jesus responded to people? No. See, that's, that's my great litmus test. Anytime we debate about something, anytime we're wondering, hey, how should we respond to something? My question always is, well, when Jesus was on this earth, how did he handle a situation like this? When Jesus was on this earth, how did he talk to people? Did Jesus use scripture as bullets? No. Did Jesus rip people apart? No. The New Testament says in Ephesians 4, verse 15, that whenever there is something wrong between us, we're to speak the truth in love. Not use scripture as bullets, not be mean to people, but when possible, in person, in love, say this, I'm speaking the truth in love for reconciliation. Number one, it's the wrong enemy. Number two, it's the wrong weapon. Number three, it's with the the wrong attitude. Number four, it's at the wrong time. It's at the wrong time. Peter's like, I'm going to make things right, right now. This is, was it wrong what they were doing to Jesus? Yes. Was it awful what they're about to do to Jesus? Yes. But it was the wrong time for Peter to try to do something about it. See, think if Peter had his way. If Peter had his way, he would have defended off all those 600 plus people. He would have bypassed the trial. He would have bypassed the cross. Would that have been a good thing? No. No. 
As awful as the cross is, it's good news for us as believers. That's when freedom and forgiveness and the weight of sin has been dealt with. It was the wrong time. Is there going to be a day that Jesus reigns on this earth and and everybody bows their knee to him? Yes. Yes, there's going to be a day that every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That's Philippians chapter 2, but it's not in this moment. Today was not the day for Peter to fight back. Today was not the day for Peter to say, I'm going to make things right in my own way, in my own timing. And see, for me personally, I fight this battle often. I fight at the wrong time. If you're taking notes, write down Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is when David is struggling with one of his sons, Absalom. Absalom, one of his sons, is trying to overthrow David. He's trying to take his kingdom. He's trying to take his wives. He, it's just all this crazy stuff is going on in David's life. And David's like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And the response in Psalm 37 is, do not fret. Fretting is when you replay something over and over again. Fretting is when you get preoccupied. We've all done that, right? We've gone to bed thinking about something. We've woke, woken up four times in the middle of the night thinking about it. We, we, we're preoccupied with it. And here's the response from heaven, Psalm 37. Do not fret. Why? Why can't I fret? Why can't I worry about it? Because here's what Psalm 37 says. It leads to evil or wrongdoing. Instead, rest. Rest in him. Psalm 37 goes on to say, it may not seem like it now. It may seem like whoever did what's wrong is getting away with it. He says, but there's going to be a day. There's going to be a day that your righteousness shines like the noonday sun. It may seem like they're getting ahead right now, but in the grand scheme of God's economy of time, they fade quickly like the grass. So don't do it at the wrong time. Here's the last one. Wrong weapon, wrong enemy, wrong attitude, wrong time, wrong time. And in Luke 22, you see that he's fighting for the wrong reason. He's fighting for the wrong reason. The wrong reason. He's trying to prove his point. <laughs> Jesus, I would never deny you. I'm sorry I fell asleep on you, but I would never deny you. Jesus, I, I would go to the cross. I'm sorry that I debated about who's the greatest, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. See, I think in this moment, Peter is fighting for the wrong reason. Let me ask you this question. If there's 6,000 soldiers around Jesus and there's Peter with a sword, how effective do you think that's going to be? Let me ask it another way. Do you think Jesus actually needed Peter to defend him? <laughs> I mean, Jesus, who spoke the world into existence, does he need Peter with a sword? And bad aim, apparently. I mean, really? Was he really aiming for the ear? I don't know. Bad aim, right? I'm going to chop your, chop your earlobe off. Prove my point. Does he need, he doesn't need Peter. He spoke the world into existence. He created everything. He, at, at, at a moment, he could call down thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels. Jesus could have done, he didn't need Peter to do it. Peter's trying to prove a point. P Peter's trying to prove how spiritual he is. Peter's trying to prove how bold he is. And that's all the wrong reason. Jesus is not asking Peter to fight. Jesus is not asking Peter to, to cut somebody's ear off. Jesus is asking us to live our lives in love, extending his peace, encouraging people. That's the right reason. That's the right way. And here's what I, what I find really interesting. A couple weeks ago when I was studying this passage for today, 
is it began to dawn on me that the last public miracle of Jesus healing somebody physically is right here. The last miracle of Jesus picking up this guy's ear and healing. So the servant that was unarmed, basically a bystander in the story, Jesus picks up his ear instead of fighting, instead of Peter, great job, awesome, everybody pull out your swords. Jesus heals him. The last public miracle of Jesus of healing somebody is healing the wound that one of his own disciples created. I don't know how that sits with you, but for me, I've wrestled with that. Jesus had to heal a wound caused by one of his own disciples. Could it be today that instead of pulling out our swords, instead of getting into these verbal this and that's of people, instead of beating people up and using Scripture like a bullet, instead of launching out on Facebook and Twitter and airing all the drama in our life to our closest hundreds of friends, right? Could it be that we need to put our swords away and say, Jesus, would you help me to have the same ministry that you had? Could it be that instead of fighting, we need to submit and say, it doesn't mean I love the fight that, that's going on around me, but it does mean I'm going to do it God's way. Could it be that we need to put our swords away? Would you bow your heads for a moment? Would you close your eyes for a moment of reflection, a moment of prayer? The truth is this morning that this leads up to the cross. This leads up to Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And so this morning, the risk is the risk of saying yes to what God has for us. For, for the believers in the house, it could be to say yes to putting our swords away. It could be saying yes to, God, there's some friction, there's some drama, there's a broken relationship. And instead of ignoring it, instead of allowing that wound to be unmet, I'm going to go and speak the truth and love to that person. I'm going to speak instead of harboring anger, instead of uh, broadcasting it on social media. I'm going to go to that person. I'm going to speak to them. When I speak, I'm not going to make a lot of accusations. I'm not going to go tit for tat and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to speak truth. I'm going to speak truth. When I do that, I'm not going to speak it in a hurtful way or a hateful way, but I'm going to speak it in